0: Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I hope you all had a good time over the holidays, and if you didn't, then don't worry, they're over. I wanted to start by giving a big shout out to Nina Garcia of Nina's Custom Tumblers. For Christmas, my mom had her customize a Tumbler for me with my Scary to Sleep logo, and it's so gorgeous. I posted a video on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so you can see it. It looks like my logo is floating in a sparkling night sky. You can find more of her work on Facebook and Instagram if you search for Nina's custom tumblers. She has some beautiful designs, heck, you can even go request a scary to sleep one that looks just like mine but with your own name on it. I'll leave a link in the show notes so you can find her more easily. Thanks again Nina, it's beautiful. And this isn't sponsored or anything. I just was so excited to receive this. It's seriously, it's it was a really thoughtful gift and I'm thank you again, Mom, if you're listening. <laughs> All right, now on to the show. My first story tonight is one I found on this great little subreddit called Removed from No Sleep. I find a lot of hidden gems there and if any of you are familiar with reddit and the no sleep subreddit there are a lot of um there are a lot of rules when it comes to the no sleep subreddit i know recently actually they've gotten a little more lax on the rules but in the old days it was kind of there were a lot of things you had to stick by it had to be in first person it had to have a believable ending for instance your main character couldn't die at the end because then how would they be telling the story which made sense it was just a lot of they went, really wanted to keep the immersion and all of the comments had to, you kind of had to pretend that the story was real, which is a lot of fun, and it's why I like No Sleep a lot, but Removed from No Sleep has a lot of great ones that just didn't fit in exact guidelines. In fact, some of them state why they were removed, and some of them are really silly reasons in my opinion, but um, anyway, I found that there, and I recommend checking it out. So this one is by user Portia Filiac, and it's called The Grey Woman. As I have once shared before, I am no stranger to odd paranormal experiences. This time I will share the two oddities that accompanied my wife and I, and later our son, when I was active duty army. As before with a man in red, the personages I would witness would always present multiple times at the same location. Let me set the visual stage. We lived off-post, but still in military housing in an old upstate New York town. We were 10 or 11 miles away from that post, which allowed a nice reprieve from constant military bearing. Every evening after duty, I would be able to leave the confining post and enjoy the warmth of home in our little two-bedroom apartment. The apartment buildings featured four apartments in each structure, and at least... 25 or 30 of these buildings consisted of our away-from-base sanctuary. Officers and enlisted coexisted alike in these older, worn-down, but sound structures. When we saw each other on base, it was salutes and parade rest, but in our little community, it was friends and family. Our little place featured two modest bedrooms, sandwiching a full bathroom at the far end of the entrance. As you walked in the front door, the open living and dining room welcomed a relief of generally compact army life. The front door opened against a wall, hiding a coat closet when opened. A few feet from that wall was an opening into a mudroom where our washer and dryer and winter gear was maintained. I put all of my military equipment in that room, reinforcing the visage of normalcy when that door was closed. Just beyond that was a kitchen with decades old formica counters, hovering over faded and stained with aged linoleum. The edge of the kitchen and edge of the living room were parallel, creating a hallway that led to the bathroom straight ahead. On the left was the larger room, and the right was the smaller. This hallway and the left room are the two spots where our consistent visitors would frequent. As I bring you back around to the living room, our television was centered immediately to the right of the door as you walked in. On that even farther wall, we laid our couch parallel with the adjacent wall. We loved open floor plans, and our furniture arrangement solidified our dedication to grand open floor space. Often we would watch our favorite shows while cuddling on that couch, where I would sit I would always be able to see the reflection of the hallway in larger bedroom opening when the screen would fade between commercials. The first time I saw the woman was right between an episode of Forensic Files and the first advertisement from their sponsors, Dunkin Donuts. The screen faded from the show to the familiar black void, and where I had expected to see nothing but the reflection, I saw her. She was tall and gray, gray like smoke and ash all over, naked and aged but not wrinkled. In her physique I saw what once might have been a gorgeous young woman, but in her present state, potential decomposition sagged and morphed the features downward. A plethora of grays blurred together in a miasma of rugged clouds near tipping point robust with moisture it was initially breathtaking but then the reality of the situation set in I saw her in the reflection and was startled at the sudden arrival of her I spun my head around and there she was just simply standing there she wasn't facing straight in the hallway or towards any particular direction she just swayed there apparently unaware of my acknowledgement of her. My wife realized I was fixated on something other than the sweet pastries on the screen and found my gaze. She followed my eyes to where I was staring and then turned back to me and asked what I was looking at. I replied that I thought I saw something, but was mistaken. The woman was still there, and the white lie I spoke was harmless. After a few more seconds, I returned my eyes to the screen and acted as if all was fine. At this point in our relationship, I hadn't really shared my visitors with my wife. I never really felt confident in the experiences until he showed up. He or it or whatever it was. The man in red was such a common visitor that I hadn't feared it like I feared this next visitor. In our bedroom, we had a cabinet that held our computer inside, tucked away in the corner. One day while I was at duty, my wife saw what we would eventually dub the Spider-Man. She said she was working on her desktop, as she normally did with her graduate work assignments. I noticed a strange movement on the screen above her, reflected left shoulder. She spun around and saw nothing. She said she could only see it on the screen. She described it as a dark humanoid figure, crouched and upside down in the corner of the ceiling. She said she could determine that his head was aimed at her and would only shift his position but never move his head, which was upside down from its hanging body. He became an apparent and scheduled appearance for her during the day. When she shared this thing with me, I opened up about all of my experiences. My wife claimed that Spider-Man was the first thing she had ever seen and had only felt oddities in her past. As days progressed to months, we grew comfortable and accustomed to our strange visitors. They never did anything but their usual stances and occasional twitches. The woman would stare at whatever she was staring at, and the Spider-Man would hang out in our bedroom. One Saturday, I was home alone, playing on the Xbox, when I saw her reflection appear. She rarely ever appeared during the day, so it was a little off-putting. But I kept on playing, Crackdown if you were wondering. When load screens and death screens came, she stayed there, motionless like always. At one particular moment, the screen faded and I saw that she had turned towards me and was reaching out to me. As I saw this, I spun around and I saw the depth of her eyes, black, a hollow penetrating a million miles deep. As I witnessed this firsthand, I saw that behind her in the bedroom was Spider-Man, crawling on the roof out of the doorway towards her. I hadn't seen him yet and was paralyzed by sudden fear. Nothing in combat prepared me for what I saw. He slinkily crawled over the ceiling threshold, slowly moving his arms and legs similar to the way a praying mantis moves when it senses a predator. I was fixated on her, but she stood absolutely still and motionless, like an ashen marble statue reaching toward me in exasperation. Her face was contorted into a twisted expression of pleading fury, punctuated by long-tasted fear and mildly highlighted by resolution and repetition. I was witnessing something that happens over and over again, I assumed. I felt compelled to act, to move, to do something. I jumped up and rushed toward the apparitions, only to see her vanish and his gaze adjust from the spot where she was standing to me. I shuddered to a stop, nearly tripping myself in locked eyes with this... this entity. He froze and calculated me for a brief, timeless second, before quickly retreating into our bedroom, stumbling on the ceiling threshold he had so smoothly navigated only moments earlier. Once fear released its paralyzing grip on me, I slowly and carefully entered our bedroom and found him in his usual corner, where my wife had always said he usually was. He wasn't staring at me anymore not even seeing my entrance. I crossed the room to see if he would snap his attention to me, but never did. I caught my failing breath, looked around the room feeling foolish and became instantly aware that he had left my field of view. My wife returned from her adventure and I shared my experience with her. She sat in disbelief when I told her what had transpired. A few weeks went by before we had realized that neither of us had witnessed the usual guests since my trial experience. We nervously laughed it off and went about life. Not far long after that, I was showering in the bathroom at the head of the hallway, relishing the tickling heat of the water trickling on my skin. As I washed and rinsed, I felt a sudden cooling of the stall. That usually signified when my wife had decided to enter the shower with me, allowing a rush of cooler air to swish into the stall from the removed curtain. I had lathered up my face for shaving and wasn't too comfortable opening my eyes with the astringent Barbasol so close to my sockets. I turned around and reached out to shock my secretly surprising wife, but felt nothing on my fingers. I plunged blindly further away from me when my hands and arms got incredibly cold, as if an air conditioner was blasting icy wind on my exposed flesh. The sensation startled me and I opened my eyes in shock. The Barbasol fumes stung and my eyes watered in discomfort momentarily. The gray woman was inches from my face, inches from my body my arms piercing her torso near her belly. Her eyes were closed, and small, shiny pearls of tears whispered down her cheeks. We held this touchless embrace a few seconds before I recoiled, half in puckering fear, half in mild disgust. I had touched bodies before, I was a combat medic, but... Seeing my hands partially vanishing into her abdominal sides disturbed me at a primordial level. She remained frozen, the only movement was the shiny dew drops casually strolling the hills and valleys of her cracked, wrinkled face. Then, all at once, she vanished and had never reappeared anywhere in that house ever again. Spider-Man never left his vantage point in the corner of our bedroom, and we said a shy farewell when we moved. I wish I had a resolution for you, an ending. Truth is, we never knew anything about that gray woman, Spider-Man, or any of it. Over this past Christmas, we had spent time with a family who lived in our building when we did. We were friends and hadn't seen each other in a few years, only sharing lives via social media. Somehow we got on the topic of strange things that happened in our apartments, and we shared the woman in gray. As we started to mention her, our friends interrupted and asked if we had seen what they called the hanging man they had in their apartment. I puckered again. Our last story comes to us tonight from author, Catherine Eddowes. You know her work from episode 22, the story, They Took the Babies First. This week she brings us another historical fiction, but this time it's set in the East End during the terrible time of Jack the Ripper. I was told by the author that it was totally okay if I didn't do the proper accents required for this story. My UK listeners are probably sighing with relief that they won't have to listen to me attempt a 19th century East End accent as well as a couple of Irish ones. Fun fact, before we begin, I thought I knew a lot about the Jack the Ripper case, but I didn't know that the song mentioned in this story, A Violet from Mother's Grave, is in fact the actual song that Mary Jane Kelly was heard singing the night she was murdered. I found a couple of recordings on YouTube. It's eerie to listen to. We don't usually have that sort of intimate information about the moments before a victim's life is taken. It really takes a victim from so long ago and really humanizes them. While reading this, Mary became more than just a character and a tragic story to me. I hope she does for you as well. The archway to Miller's Court in 1888 was a restricted pinched slit through which bleak-eyed devilings glared. Their hollow features would search carnivorously, cutting up your face with their dark eyes as they passed you over. Teresa Ferris lived her small, young life in and out of that archway gaunt of cheek, and only ten, she had already accepted the joyless, opportunistic misanthropy that growing up in the East End created and all its prisoners shackled here. Father, the boys in the street are chasing a dog, a wee dog, can I go after them? Father, McFerris, looked at his daughter and his heart dropped to his boots. She was small and thin, and her hair was lank. A wee dog, eh? Mick walked to the small fire with its blackened pot hanging over, waved to the seat. Now, our Teresa. What do you think those boys will do to that dog? She sat. They'll hurt it. Likely, but... If they'll do it to that poor wee dog... What will they do to you?" Teresa snorted, her derision for the local boys fierce and knowing. <laughs> I've had stones thrown at me before. You eat your breakfast, our Teresa. You're only just home from the factory. A piece of molding bread from the Salvation Army's charity. It was more than most had around here because Father Ferris was sober enough First thing mornings to queue at the good people's doors. He had acquired the nickname for his counseling of the poor folks around the East End. Not preaching religion, but politics. His fervor matching that of any Benedictine. Since learning to read and write, he had taught Teresa, and as many of those around the East End as was interested. Not many, truth to tell. There's more important things than we dogs. Mounted police rolled over men and women like they were ninepins. Remember that, our Teresa. Teresa chewed on the bread and it tasted like the color black. Mick looked fiery with zealous conviction. And Teresa wondered for father's mind as she did sometimes. The events of Bloody Sunday last year had hardened his determination, and part of that had been giving up the gin. Mother had not followed him, but Mick, father, Ferris, was an unusual East Ender. The door rattled now, and female voices roared in early morning drunkenness, Mother and Mary. Mary Jane Kelly had a number of names that Teresa knew and a few she didn't. Dark Emma, Fair Emma, Marie Jeanette, Ginger, Mary Jane, confused Teresa because she looked like a dark angel, but smelled like shite, the same stink everyone else had around here, but on her it was fouler because her face was so lovely. In the years to come, Teresa would think of Mary Jane Kelly often, When an old woman with arthritic hands, Father Ferris long dead and mother gone, her grandchildren would ask Teresa about the Whitechapel murders. She would tell them what had been in the newspapers and nothing else. And in her quietest moments, she would see Mary in the night. But in those obsidian visions, Mary's skin was gone and her hair looked like a matted, bloody wig. This morning, Mary's voice was all Irish. She would often be Irish when she was drunk, and she was drunk this morning. The smell of gin, moldy and sour, stank up the small room now as they entered. Mary and Mother laughed. Their screeching sounded like cats ripping the flesh off of mice. Father Ferris, Mary said, smiling. She turned and winked at Teresa, and Teresa smiled widely at Mary. McFerris sighed and stood, the scraping noise of the chair sounding like the rattled breathing of a TB victim. His face looked narcoleptic, and the fervor and joy of politics had left his eyes. Sit, the two of you if you're going to come in. His voice was flagged and flat. Teresa got up and went for the pottage and her mother's stinking, damp arms went around her. My bonny angel. Angela Ferris cooed and her mephitic breath burned Teresa's face. Mary bent towards Teresa. The bonniest, Mary took Teresa's face in her cold hands. For the years afterwards, Teresa would remember those cadaverous hands, feeling on her face the sheer deadness of them attached to Mary's skinned body as it had been, not when she held Teresa's face in them, but when she glimpsed them through the cracked window. One finger had been "'stripped of flesh all the way to the bone. "'Now you leave her be, Mary Jane Kelly,' said Angela Ferris, "'suddenly looking dark. "'She's not for buying your wares, "'even if you do sell them to lassies also.' "'Ah, fuck off, fat Ferris,' "'Mary Jane sounded fierce and terrifying quite suddenly. "'And Teresa heard that quickness in Mary.' that erratic ability to turn like a rabid cornered dog once so pleasing and compliant. Uncomfortable now at the woman's mood, Teresa squirmed out of the folds of her mother's slack flesh and rags and heard her father say softly, Enough, Mary Jane Kelly. His voice was pale, and it had pleading splashed on its hem. Teresa, get the pottage for Mary and your mother. Teresa turned her back on the songs and laughter of the women, who were friends again now, just as suddenly as they had been enemies. Angela Ferris moved, and she shifted her weight nearer the fire. She pulled too hard on her daughter, who was still holding on the label half in the slop. Teresa's hand, still clutched at the label, went with her, and she and her mother fell backward, awkward and loud. She couldn't hear herself cry out because Mary was laughing again, and the sound of it boomed around the room like a funeral bell. From the floor, she looked up and saw her father pull her mother off of her. Angela thudded to the floor in a whoosh of dirty air as Mick unceremoniously dropped her. Father Ferris placed a wet cloth over Teresa's hand. His face was overcast. You keep it on there. He marched to his wife who was lying in a heap, and the small man lifted the flaccid woman up and shoved her out the door. Away, and sober yourself up. He grabbed at Mary also, whose face still laughed like a wind-up grinning skull, and Teresa added a new kind of hurt to that of her reddened hand. Don't come back till you're sober and shut up your laughing. I can't abide it. Father Ferris closed and locked the door. But the sounds of Mary's laughter haunted the room from the other side. <laughs> Teresa looked at the burn and heard Mary reassure her mother. He'll soften up, a soft touch, really, when all's said and done. Pathetic whines came from her mother. never usually like that. I'm, I'm a bad wife, but it's the gin, Mary, the gin. Teresa thought they could both fuck off and good riddance if the Ripper got them. She knew all about her mother. She wasn't a child. But she watched the women waddle down the gash of the archway with Mary Jane Kelly's (laughs) laughing skull face haunting her mind. And she felt suddenly very young. Later in the weak light of the London morning, Teresa held her father's hand as he greeted neighbors, offering help and advice, urging them to join the Law and Liberty League. Teresa knew that most of them wouldn't, but she admired her father's pluck for insisting. At the meeting, people with faces as ardent as her father's filled the church hall, but not all blazed with the conviction of the believer, and many looked dejected and desperate. When Teresa's voice began, it held in a pronounced tone, even though Teresa herself couldn't hear it. I will follow Annie Besant because I believe in her, as does my father. There was some quiet applause. An educated woman, you can trust her. The applause now was loud, and Teresa felt her face flush with something that might have been pride. Annie Besant was a middle-class bitch, but she would do them some good. After the meeting, she wandered home herself, Father Ferris communing with his people. She straggled around, hoping to see the dog again, but it wasn't there, nor the boys, It was late by the time she got back to Miller's court, and as she turned the corner, Teresa saw Mary's slim, attractive figure slide into their small home. Teresa ran over and hovered at the door, listening and watching through the crack. She saw Mick put his paper down. What do you want, Mary Jane Kelly? Angela is not here. He paused. I'll tell her you stopped in. I know she's not here. She's all huffish with me. And Teresa, is she back? I do like that lassie. Then you'll stay away from her, Mary Jane Kelly. Teresa saw Mary's shoulder sigh. Always, Mary Jane Kelly. So it is, Mick. Never Mary Jane. Never Mary. Or the other names you go by? Mary Jane smiled now. And forever afterwards, Teresa would remember that smile as seen through the slash in the doorway. It came to her sometimes, looking like the open wound in Mary's abdomen, as it later lay in her blood-soaked bed in her small, stuffy, dank room in Miller's court. Mary looked solemnly at Mick. Is it true what Angela says about you? That you are a scrapper? That you could take on five big blokes at a time and leave them all in the dirt, holding their balls in agony? Mick was edgy. That's what they say. Again that laugh. <laughs> Ah, Angela, was maybe right. You are a wee lassie these days. Mick was suddenly dark. These days? These days, I have better things to think of than silly bits of strumpets like you, Mary Jane Kelly, and Angela Ferris with it, because neither of you will help yourself, goddammit. Mary struggled in the face of Mick's seriousness. Teresa saw Mary move to him and hold his gloomy face between her hands. Mick, I'm sorry. Mary kissed him, and Teresa thought he let her. Teresa thought the kiss looked real and sad and tormented. I'm going, Mick. America. You and Teresa could come with me. I've got enough tickets for us all." Mick looked suddenly terrified, like the Ripper himself had peeped in through the window, all smiling teeth and cutthroat razors. I have to save our Teresa from Angela. I won't have to save her from you as well. He grabbed Mary by the shoulder and propelled her to the door. Teresa retreated to the corner in the shadows and held her breath. Mick closed the door behind Mary with a dark, maleficent thud. Bloody go to America. Please go and leave us alone. In the alleyway of Miller's Court. The light was dimming, and it wouldn't be long until the gas lamps were lit. Teresa crouched in the corner and heard Mary's feet click along the cobbles as she passed the windows, hunkering there. Teresa looked up as the sound of a family in the room there emanated. A baby cried, a woman shushed, a chair scraped. But below this, Teresa heard a whimpering and the unkind laughter of the boys. They approached from the small end of the alleyway, the narrowest part that led to another, even smaller passage. Teresa saw that they held the dog between the two of them. It squirmed and whimpered and bared its teeth. There were four boys today, and they seemed like a gray swarm. The dog looked too small in their square, dirty hands, and Teresa didn't even think of what she was doing when she lunged for the two holding it. In surprise, they dropped the dog and it hobbled away, back into the shadows. Oi, you! The biggest boy was about to throw a punch. It's that Ferris girl again, bloody girl. He paused with his fist ready. Teresa lifted her chin. You frightened to hit me then? Come on, not hitting a girl. He didn't hit her, but he pushed her flat on her face, and with that the boy spat at her and strutted, laughing, to the open end of the alleyway. Teresa wiped her face and looked at her skinned knees. She listened. The dog whined, cowering in the darkest part of the alleyway. Teresa could see its eyes glowing dimly. Doggy, doggy, she whispered to it. Come here, come on. The dog thumped its tail. But Mary's door screeched then. A dark figure came out and the dog turned tail and ran. The dark figure's cloak swirled in the faint light of the alley and it placed a top hat on its head and spun away. At that, Mother came out of Mary's door also. Angela Ferris was flushed with drink and good humor. Imagine that fine gent of yours down this way. Hi, my gentleman friend in Paris knew him. He's a painter. I don't know where you get them, Mary. I don't know. Angela's voice changed now. I shouldn't say it, because good riddance to bad rubbish, but I'll miss you. I'll be here tomorrow. I'm set on seeing the Lord Mayor's show. But Angela Ferris cried and sniffed. Hush now, Angie. Mary Jane's voice was full of dark soothing and Teresa watched from the blackness as Mary kissed her mother, like Teresa had seen her do before. A long, loving kiss that made Teresa sad in a way, and she didn't know why. Mary Jane pulled away and dabbed Angela's eyes with the cuff of her coat. Mary reached into her chemise. "'This is yours, my gentleman,' You get a quarter. A quarter? Angela Ferris' voice sounded affronted. You're a cheating bitch! Mary sounded offended when she said that. I am not a cheat! Quick and sudden, she reached at Angela's face and scratched. The women howled at each other. From a window, a dirty curtain twitched, then fell back into place. Eventually, Angela pushed Mary into the wall and straightened her hair in the way drunk women do, turning her back on Mary. Mary moaned, Oh, come on now, Angela. Take your share. I don't want to be alone tonight. But Angela stumbled off. Go fuck off, Mary Jane Kelly. May the Ripper take you. Mary Jane's voice was just as childish and truculent now. You're a fucking cow, Angela Ferris, with a moldy old cunny. Teresa hated the sound in their voices. Mary Jane Kelly sighed and laughed a cynical laugh. (laughs) She'll be back. There was a pause and she looked into the darkness of the tight end of the alleyway. You still after that dog again, Teresa, wee lass. Mary Jane stepped closer, and she looked dingy, her cheeks with a sordid flush to them. Teresa edged out of the darkness. Yes. I want to take care of it. Mary didn't say anything in response to that just went back inside and inclined her head for Teresa to come with. Mary's room was small, and like everyone else around here, she didn't have much in it. But it was tidier and cleaner than Teresa had expected. Would you like a nip? Mary held up a bottle of gin, an expensive-looking one. Teresa shook her head. Mary looked at the bottle and took a gulp. Probably just as well. (sighs) She looked Teresa over, noting her skinned knees. You should know how to throw a real punch, wee Teresa. She paused and looked tightly at Teresa. Come on, then. Teresa moved towards Mary and smelled the expensive gin. Hold your hand like this. Put your thumb here or you'll break it. Now, push from the shoulder. Mary held up her palm. Teresa tried, and Mary's eyes twinkled. Again, (sniffs) Teresa did so, with building confidence. Good girl. Plenty of practice on those we ourselves now, eh? And if that fails, grab their balls and squeeze. Mary Jane Kelly laughed hearty and full, but it made Teresa shudder. And in the years that would follow, Teresa would tell a story of how she saw death then in Mary's face and heard blood-red slashes in that laugh. Teresa looked into the now dark alleyway. The lamplighter reached up and lit the gas. But I fear the dog will always come back to those boys. Ah, well, dogs will do that, even when folks throw stones at them. Even when folks kick them and pull them by their necks. Some people are like that too, Teresa. Don't be like that when you grow up. I won't. Mary looked at Teresa, dreamy for a moment. Then she opened a box and handed Teresa a newspaper clipping. Teresa looked at them. What are these? They are mostly lies, but read them anyway. Teresa read, Another ghastly murder has been committed in the East End almost identical to the murder last week of Marianne Nichols. The victim of one of the unfortunate class was seen drinking at the Ten Bells pubs. The throat was cut and the lower part of the body horribly mutilated. Mary's face was grim, and her thinking moved behind her eyes. It is a terrible shame, is it not? Mary sighed, and Teresa heard something like giving up in Mary's voice. Teresa, will you write to my mother for me? Yes, if you like, but won't you do it yourself? Not tonight, I'm tired. Mary handed Teresa a blank page from the box that held the clippings, and a pencil, and said, I am so sorry to be leaving, but it is for the best. Teresa scratched the words. I will miss you all, but we have been strangers now for long a year. Do not look for me. I loved you. Mary's voice trailed off as though it had moved far away into the dark night, just like the dog in the alley. But now a man was at the door. A tall man, young, and he was smiling that dead smile that Mary would smile sometimes. Mary wasn't smiling now. Teresa, it's time for you to go. Teresa moved to the door, not wanting to meet the man's eyes. She felt them, though, like dark piss holes in the snow at night. You couldn't quite see them, but you could smell their stench. The man reached out suddenly, softly and lifted Teresa's face. His Irish voice was soothing, and incongruous with his dead, burned, inflamed eyes. You're a nice wee thing, aren't you? Teresa slid out of his grasp. From behind, Mary shoved her out of the room real quick and closed the door, hissed in Teresa's ear as she did it. And don't be hanging around about, listening at the door. Mary's voice was all Irish again, and that was strange, because she seemed to have sobered up fast. Teresa did hang at the door listening, and she heard the man say, We've been looking for you, Alice. The man laughed. But you don't go by Alice anymore, do you? You were only in Dublin a short while, though. But you seem to make yourself noticed in a short space of time wherever you go. Alice Carroll. Mary Jane. Who is this Mary Jane Kelly, then? Some poor bitch you knocked off, eh? A girl I met in Wales. I... I went to Paris with her. She died there. Gave me her letters. No one else to care, she said. She... She was my friend. Well, we all know how you treat your friends, don't we, Alice? Mary's voice held real fright in it. I haven't told anyone about the brotherhood. I'm a patriot. Teresa crept to the window and its broken pane, looked in, saw Mary move to the man, but the man held out his hand at Mary. No, no, you left me in the shite, Alice. There's a mess to be cleaned up. The man took out a blade, straight-edged and bright, glinting in the dark night. Mary's face gave nothing away, blank just as it would be in the morning when half of it was off the bone. Wait, look, I have tickets for a boat sailing tomorrow for America. I had hoped to take someone, but... But what? Another man? The little girl. I had wanted to take the little girl. Mary reached into her purse and showed him the tickets. Teresa saw her hide one of them in her pocket. See? Two... I know what we'll do, and once it's done, we'll both go to America. There you can make contact. Tell them you were seen and had to leave, and they need people in the States. No one will ever know me there. Best of both, see? She kissed him, and he looked more willing now, less on the edge of violence. But from far down the street end of the archway came a shout. Marie Jeanette Kelly, I want my money. Angela Ferris hobbled up the alley until she saw Teresa. What are you doing outside this whore's room? Teresa needed to hush her mother or the man would be out at them. Mother, come home. For a sleep, eh? Teresa reached up and hugged her mother. Angela softened and looked at her daughter her face sober for a moment. How sorry am I for my wee lass? Don't be, mother. Let's go home. Nick Ferris sat at the table reading. More ripper. But Teresa had heard quite enough of that for today. Teresa brought Angela in, who by now was quietly sobbing. Mick stood up and reached for his wife. All right now, my Angie, let's get you to bed. He lay her down on the bed in the one room home and sat, touching her hair. It was greasy and ugly, but Mick touched it with affection. Soon, soft snores came from Angela and Mick rose from the bed and moved to the table. With a sigh, he sat down. (sighs) You did fine this afternoon at the rally, and you're a good wee speaker, too. Not as good as you, though. Ah, well, maybe that's age and the memory of hardships that fire me up. Mick's face darkened in thought. What were you doing with Mary Jane Kelly? He didn't let her answer. You stay away from her. I'm going to save the dog and bring it home, and we'll love it, won't we, Father Ferris?" Mick laughed. (laughs) All right then, if you dare. Mick turned the page of the paper. The Duke de Mail, Count and Countess, Carolee, and the Prince, Esterhazy, have arrived at Sandringham on a visit to the Prince and Princess of Wales. Mick looked at Teresa, and they both laughed. All right, our Teresa, bed with you. Later, Teresa woke in her blankets on the floor, not remembering how she had got there, but she knew it was still night. Mick was seated at the table still, but there was a bottle of half-finished gin in front of him, not the expensive kind that Mary had in her room the cheap kind that her mother usually drank, the kind that smelled of hurt, like rotting bodies. Mother wasn't in her bed. Teresa looked at the dead fire. Where's? I fell asleep at the fire, bloody dreams of the Ripper. Mick looked lost and dejected, and his eyes were soggy and drunk. He waved a letter, like a man surrendering a battle with his white flag, too tired to raise it high. Under the door, your mother slipped it. Teresa got up, tired legs stumbling, and took the letter. I am sorry to be leaving, but it is for the best. I will miss you all, but we have been strangers now for a long year. Do not look for me. I loved you. Mick glowered at the deadening fire. Why would she leave me? His voice had that grating note to it that Angela so often had. The first time Teresa had ever heard of him. I would have stayed with her through it. He drank again. Teresa heard voices in the alleyway. The boys. The bark of the dog. Mick looked up, suddenly full of madness and rage. Those fucking boys! He crashed out of his chair and threw open the door. You little shite! The boys had stones in their hands and stopped mid-throw, looking at Mick. He suddenly wasn't Father Ferris anymore. He was a scrapper again. What's wrong with you? Mick's voice was full of more pain than Teresa knew possible. He looked at the dog. For God's sake, get out of here! He lunged after it, and the dog whimpered pathetically and bounced hurriedly to the dark end of the alley, and through the slight channel there just as he had done earlier. Mick moved to the boys and threw drunken punches at them, not all missing. You little bastards, little fucking bastards, all of you. The boys cowered and Teresa thought Mick might actually kill one or all of them. She pulled at Mick's shirt, tearing him away, shouting at the boys. Go on, get! The boys ducked out of Mick's grasping, drunken, but frightening hand. He looked at Teresa with beseeching eyes, and now Teresa's heart broke for her father. Inside the house, she put Mick to bed amongst self-pitying whimpers and shredded words. Why? I never thought. Wouldn't leave me. Why? And just before he fell asleep, Mick looked up at his daughter. I love her, you see. The fire steamed as it died, and the house was quiet, the alleyway dark and secretive. The boys were gone, the dog too. From next door, she heard Mary's voice, all Irish again, a little drunk, but not too much. She was singing. Mm-hmm. It was only a violet I plucked from my mother's grave. Mm-hmm. My I from mother's... A little female laughter as Teresa pulled the chair near the door and sat there, falling into a sludgy sleep, one eye poised on. A movement from Mick. But in the dingy morning a couple of hours later, the bark of the dog moved her to the door. Outside the alley was bleak with autumn morning darkness as the dog ran past her. He was running away from the boys. Good, clever boy. And so, with that, Teresa squared her little sharp shoulders and got ready for it. The boys were grimy with deprivation, and they spat, humiliated hatred, at Teresa. She spat her own hatred back. The gang leader stepped forward as Teresa knew he would, and his eyes were dark with animated violence. Piss off, little Irish. His voice was Dutch. That's the preacher's daughter, that fairest one. The leader of the boys looked down at her, his eyes slanted with unthinkingness. She waited, and as he swung at her, she ducked, grabbed his trousers, and, as he yelped in surprise and pain, squeezed tightly. It wasn't until he fell to his knees that Teresa made the fist that Mary had shown her, just the right way. Her small hand felt like solid rock, and it pushed downwards from her shoulder to his face, crunching bone and causing blood to spurt. The boy whined and rolled around, not knowing whether to hold his nose or his balls, but through bloodied snorts, he managed to voice his loathing. Here's as your old man. Teresa couldn't help herself. She lifted her knee. She swung her leg back. She kicked him in the mouth. Mary hadn't taught her that. She heard teeth clash and crack. His head smashed into the stinking dirt of the ground. You're fucking right I am. And for just a moment, she thought she might bring her foot down on his head as it lay there. Listen to the satisfied burst and pop of his skull. But as she lifted her knee again, this time not backwards, but high over the grimy, pathetic head, poised to come straight down where it would cram his jaw far into the back of his skull, she suddenly saw the looks from the other boys, her breath caught in her mouth and she stood there, staring back at their horrified, frightened faces. Slowly, she stood back from the boy on the ground, not knowing herself, but feeling the tug and pull of glistening, glorious violence. If she'd had a knife, she would have cut all their bellies. Good God, she wanted to see their insides slip and fall onto the ground with blistering scarlet, like wine the posh folks drank. She wanted to see their innards steam in the cool air of the autumn east end, once out of their bodies, to watch them whimper in shock and surprise. She wanted to bathe in their guts and stamp her footprints in death redness. She wanted... She panted with blessed desire but the dog's soft snuffle came hushed from the darkness. Again, the cry of a baby from a window, a mother shushing, a curtain twitched, and a chair scraped. Teresa backed away from the boys, from herself as she had birthed her into being. The boys, standing, moved with caution around the one on the ground, helping him up, scuttled away from her as quickly as they could. They carried the broken boy, the boy who could have been much more broken. Teresa's head was still echoing full of hard, blunt murder. And lads, they stopped at her words. If I hear that anything's happen to the dog, both mad Ferris's will find you. And I won't stop my foot this time. They lowered their eyes and passed her, one or two spitting at the ground near her feet with softened residual hatred, a last reminder to her that they'd regroup and come back at her some day she wasn't expecting it. And in the years that followed, one or two of the boys would brave it and have a go at either Teresa or Mick, mostly Teresa. There was a moment when a couple of them were old enough and big enough to test the metal of Mick's fist. Mick, not yet an aged man, not worth fighting and too respected about the place to risk anything serious, because Mick, father, Ferris, did not bury himself in the bottle. Teresa wouldn't let him. He found his sobriety and politics again even if it now sometimes accompanied fists and drinking as it used to in his younger years. The payoff seemed to be something he could live with, seemed to soothe the loss of his useless, crumpled-up wife, although he still looked around darkened London corners sometimes for his Angie. Teresa held her sore knuckles, held them up against the brightening sky, A bruise was forming in the cold, damp morning light of London. She smiled at it, anticipating proud purple and black. The gaslighter man approached the court, his heels click-click-clicking, and without a second or even first glance at Teresa, he extinguished the lamp and left Miller's court in the grubby dimness of the approaching morning. That was when she noticed a light was still on in Mary's room. A shabby curtain blew gently in and out of the broken window, and Teresa felt a darkness reach up inside of her, through the opening between her own legs that her mother had told her all the boys would soon be after, the boys as well as Mary Jane. It dragged her stomach to the ground and pulled her guts out. She felt them slide down her legs, and she almost pissed herself, even before she saw Mary Jane Kelly's hollowed-out body. Through the corner crack in the window, Teresa poked her fingers in and pulled at the dirty material, and her eyes betrayed her need to look away as they stared, searched the room for every detail they could find. She didn't know how long she stood there, but the sound of a man's footsteps on the cobbles again made her move. She hid in the dark corner of the alleyway and saw it was Mary's rent man. He did the same as Teresa, pulled the flimsy curtain aside through the broken glass and looked in. But unlike Teresa, he drew back almost immediately and gasped. Teresa watched him, utterly transfixed and sweaty with dread as he ran towards the street end of the alleyway, heels clacking with desperation and horror. Teresa ran now, too. She ran and hid in the corners of the east end, doorways and backyards. She watched as a policeman was hailed, watched as other Scotland Yardmen came and went, bloodhounds, crowds forming... The morning felt deep with fear, and the east end fidgeted in whispering suspicion. The horror of Mary Jane Kelly's death, even more engulfing than the others. Teresa kept her own counsel, but she wandered the streets simply not knowing where to turn her eyes, because everywhere she looked she saw Mary's cut breast lying on the small table beside the bed. She saw Mary's hand stuck deep in her open stomach. A quickly darkening, gutted ruby red. Saw Mary lying in her bed with her legs wide apart, the right bent at the knee, flesh cut away to the white of the bone. Her intestines straggling beside her. Her face, gone. Teresa felt dizzy with the image, the bone of Mary's cut-off nose, her hair darkened and matted with blood, the line of skin bright and ragged and high on her forehead, every woman that passed, some scurrying to Miller's court, some away, wore Mary's blood-red face, once so grimly and lovely, Teresa eventually joined the crowds, and in their numbers, she felt a calm normalness soothe her, take her off the riverbank of blood and awfulness that she felt could pull her in on its thick, bodily tide. She looked at faces, some sad, some revolted, some morbidly gleeful, as the stories began to circulate, and for now she stayed quiet. Her stories only came later, when life had given her back her own guts and insides, and she stopped checking her legs for dripping blood and straggling viscera, but her stories always left certain things out. Some things she could only tell herself. Once the intensity of the morning's discovery began ebbing, a strange quietness hugged London, The weak light of an autumn day reassured people again. But Teresa couldn't bear to go home yet. Couldn't bear to face a hungover Mick, a new Mick she quietly understood she would have to get used to. She slouched around the streets all day in the way Mick had never allowed her to do before. Later, with the sky darkening into a grimy night, Teresa neared Miller's court again. A woman and a man walked towards her, both of them speaking all Irish. The woman held a dog on a leash, the same scruffy mutt with his light brown eyes full of love and fear and cunning to survive, and as she passed Teresa, the woman let the leash drop and the mutt stopped by Teresa and gave her a sniff as she held out her hand to the willing muscle. Teresa heard the song again from the woman's lips. It was only a violet I plucked from my mother's grave. Teresa took the leash with a childish uncertainty. The dog looked up at Teresa with utter devotedness and acceptance, and Teresa could have sworn, as she passed her, that smile the woman smiled. Was so like Mary Jane Kelly's. Thanks for listening. To say I missed you guys over the holidays. I'm really glad to be back. First off, I have some Patreon shout outs. My eternal thanks to Courtney Zweig, Logan Beard, and Caitlin Cancel Me. I'll be getting all my 5 and $10 patron bonuses mailed out this week, and Leticia, I haven't forgotten about you. Also, a reminder I'm still in need of stories to read on the show. Please email me at, at gmail.com. My budding horror authors out there make it a resolution to send in a story. I don't feature every story on the show that I get. I'm really trying to hone in the tone now that it's really taking off, so please don't be discouraged if I don't use a story on the show. I'm just starting to get pickier about stories that work well. For instance, if there's a ton of dialogue between several characters, it just gets a little muddy and confusing hearing me read it out loud in my same voice. And I just haven't mastered voices quite yet. I sent in about five stories to no sleep and they only ever featured one. And it just made me more determined and look at me now. So please don't take it as a slight if I don't use your story. I'm just limited in my talents to portray things in an audio medium. <laughs> All right. I look forward to some new meat in my inbox. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scare you to sleep. You can join the Facebook page and chat with your fellow listeners and some of the authors I feature on the show, facebook.com slash to sleep. If you'd like, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Shelby B. Scott. I think that's all for this week, everyone. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.